0: Good morning. For those of you I don't know yet, my name is Ryan and I have the honor of serving as college pastor here at Northway and I am always extremely excited to be able to come and to study God's word with you on a Sunday morning. So I'm excited to continue in worship as we study God's word. So a few weeks ago, um, Eric, our worship pastor, came into my office and he was talking to me. And I noticed pretty quickly that he has something in his nose. And we've all been there before, right? We've been in those conversations. We've been in those conversations where they have something in their nose, they have something in their teeth or on their face, and you're faced with a choice, right? You can either avoid the awkwardness of the moment, avoid telling them what's going on, And hope that as they go on their day that they don't see that many people or maybe that they catch it themselves. Or you can speak up and and in the awkwardness just say, hey, you got something going on there and, and help them fix it. And so here I was. I was with Eric and I had this choice. I could either let him go on his day and avoid the awkwardness of the conversation and hope that maybe he just didn't see that many people or maybe that he would catch it. Or I could speak up and in the awkwardness tell him that he had something going on there. And so, I let him go on his way and never said anything. (laughs) And I know that makes me a terrible person. But Eric, this is my formal apology, my public apology to you. Now, here's why I tell you this. It is easy to just avoid difficult and hard conversations. But it is loving to speak the truth, to speak the hard truth. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. This morning we will be in Ezekiel chapter 33. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 33 or if you have the message map. Or you can also turn to the Version Bible app and go to the event section where our message map is as well. But we'll be in Ezekiel chapter 33. And just to give a little bit of context leading up to this passage, um, this passage follows a time where Israel, the people of God, have been in God's promised land for many years. They've been in the promised land for many years, but they have been in active rebellion against God. They have spiraled further and further and further away from him, further and further and further into wickedness. And as you read the Old Testament, you get the sense with Israel This this overwhelming feeling of, of, God, how long are you going to put up with this people? You read them, and you read him saving them time and time again, providing for them time and time again, and you keep reading how they continue to disobey him and rebel against him. And yeah, they have moments where they trust him and follow him, but overwhelmingly they are falling further and further away, and you just get this sense as they spiral into wickedness, God, how long are you going to be merciful with them? How long are you going to continue to put up with this people? And in fact, it got so bad that they began to sacrifice their own children on the altars to these false gods that they were worshiping. It got so bad that the Bible says that they are, became worse than any other nation around them. And so God finally said, enough is enough, and he sent judgment. He sent judgment to them through the Babylonian Empire under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar to come and to to siege Jerusalem and take away captives and exiles. And among the people who were taken away was a man named Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest, and he and his wife were among the first wave of exiles that were taken away, taken to a foreign land, taken to uh, live in exile, and while in exile, God calls Ezekiel to be his prophet. Now, prophet, that just means that he served as God's messenger. That he said, Ezekiel, I'm going to give you messages and you are to relay them to the people. You're to proclaim them to the people. But when he calls them as his messenger, he tells Ezekiel, he says, listen, they're not going to listen to you probably. Their hearts have become like stone. And so you're going to proclaim these messages but it's gonna fall on deaf ears and they won't listen to to you. And there's the tragedy of God's chosen people, the ones that he redeemed from slavery in Egypt, who he saved and provided for time and time again. They refused to listen to his messages. But nevertheless, Ezekiel is faithful in proclaiming the messages that God gives him. He's faithful in speaking the truth to the people. And that's what we're going to pick up here in Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verses 1 through 6. And in these verses, we're going to see uh, God use an illustration that he used earlier in the book of Ezekiel. So starting off in verses 1 through 6, it says this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon our land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So he gives this, this illustration of that of a watchman. You see, in, in this culture, in this time, these cities, these towns, these villages would have been surrounded by walls. That wall was a source of safety for them. The bigger, the stronger, the more fortified the, the wall was, the more safe the people were. And on these walls, they would place uh, these people and appoint these people called watchmen. And the watchmen's job was to watch, they were to look out and observe and, and stay, keep watch. And then when they would see something coming, see some sort of invasion, some sort of danger, they would alert the people. They would sound the trumpet so that the people then could hear the warning and then take action, whatever that might look like. It it could mean them running. It could mean them uh, gathering together to fight or hiding, whatever it was. The watchman was to alert the people of the coming judgment so that the people could then respond. And here in this passage, in this illustration, he says, there, pretend there's this people, imagine this people who they're living in sin, living in rebellion against me. And so I decide to send judgment, send an invading army, send the sword against them. And so the people appoint a watchman to watch out. It says, if the watchman sees the invasion coming and sounds the trumpets to alert and warn the people, but the people refuse to listen to the the warning, then they're going to die in their sins and their iniquities. But the watchman is going to be innocent. He did his job. He warned the people. He said if they would have just responded to the, the warning, then they could have been saved. But he said, however, if the watchman sees the sword coming, sees the judgment coming, but refuses to sound the alarm, to sound the trumpets, then the people still die in their sins and in their iniquity. It's, it's on them that judgment is coming, but their blood's also going to be on the hands of the watchman. I'm going to hold the watchman accountable for it. And so he continues in verses 7 through 9. He says, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul." So he he tells Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, you are my watchman. You are the one I have appointed to watch out for this people. And so when you see judgment coming, if you will sound the trumpet, sound the alarm, let them know that it's coming, but they refuse to listen to you, then they're gonna die in their iniquities, they're gonna die in their sins, but you will be innocent of guilt. I will not hold you accountable for it. He says, however, Ezekiel, If you see judgment coming, but you refuse to sound the alarm and let the people know. If you say, well, they're probably not going to listen to me anyways. They've never listened to me this whole time. Or if you say, well, if I tell them this bad news, they might get mad at me and they they might harm me. And so I'm just not going to do it. If you refuse to sound the alarm, then judgment will still come and the people will die in their sins. But Ezekiel, I'm going to have their blood on your hands as well. You are held accountable for them. He says, Ezekiel, you must proclaim this message. You must sound the trumpet, sound the alarm. And the the alarm is judgment is coming. The, The punishment for your sins is coming due, people. And so that makes us ask the question, why does God announce judgment to this people? Why does he take the time to warn them that his judgment is coming? It seems kind of counterintuitive, right? And I loved how Pastor Ben Stewart talked about it uh, in one of his messages. He, He said, you know, God, he asked, why would God announce judgment? He said, he's God. God doesn't have to announce it. You don't look at an ant and proclaim judgment before you step on it. No, you just step on it. God doesn't have to announce judgment, but he does. He does because it's the last thing he wants to do. It's the last thing he wants to do. He announces judgment because he wants them to repent. See, he's a, a just God who must punish sin, who must punish wicked and evil, but he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. It says in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? See, he, he announces judgment, In hopes that they will hear the message and that they will repent, that they will turn from their sins. And he says, when they turn from their sins, I will be willing to offer them forgiveness. I will wipe the slate clean. I will forgive them of their sins. But the people won't listen. They refused to hear the message. Their hearts were hardened against the message of God. Their hearts were hardened against God. They, they chose to believe these false prophets of the day who were saying, oh, exile is not going to be that long. It's not going to be that bad. We're going to return back to our homes. We're going to return back to Jerusalem. They believed the false messages of the day because they were easier to believe. They were the ones that they wanted to believe, but they rejected the truth of the message of God, and they rejected God. And so God did exactly as he promised he would do. In Ezekiel thirty three twenty one it says, in the 12th year of our exile... In the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. He brought destruction upon them. Their exile would not be short. They would not return quickly back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed. He enacted judgment upon the people. But even in Ezekiel, amidst all this proclamation of judgment, we see hope. He gives them hope. In Ezekiel 36 verses 24 through 27, it says this. says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, although the people had continuously rebelled against him, although they were extremely wicked and their hearts were hardened, God chose not to wipe them out. He doesn't bring total destruction upon them. He says, hey, this exile is not going to be the end to you. I'm going to bring you back home. What we hear other prophets in scripture say is that he's going to preserve a remnant of the people of Israel. Why? Because of his covenant with them. His promise with them that when he promised Abraham, he promised that he would give him many descendants. And through his descendants, he would bless the entire world. And so God being faithful to his promise, he would not wipe out the descendants of Abraham. He would not wipe out the people of Israel. He would preserve a remnant. And what we see is that this promise, this hope, is not just here for the people of Israel. It's it's hope for all of mankind. That he says that he's going to forgive them of their sins and their wickedness. That he's going to replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That he's going to put his spirit within them. See, he's got to replace the heart because that's the root of all of our problems. Mankind has a heart issue. Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, writes, If only there were some evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's the condition of mankind. We all have a heart problem. In our hearts, yes, we're capable of good at times, but ultimately our hearts are wicked and evil and in active rebellion against the Lord. And God, because he is just, he must punish wickedness. He must punish sin and this rebellion. But not only is he just and not only does he punish wrongdoing, he is the definition of love. And because of that love, he extends mercy and he extends grace. And that while we were his enemies, he sends Jesus. Jesus, in the lineage of Abraham, in the lineage of David, preserved from the remnant of Israel, born fully God and fully man, stepped down into this creation, and he lived the perfect life that we could not live, keeping all of God's holy and perfect standard. And then at the end of his life, he's hung on a cross to die. And on that cross, he who knew no sin became sin. And then on that cross, God poured out all of his wrath and judgment on the sin. He poured out all of his wrath and judgment on Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that was intended for us. And on that cross, Jesus died. But praise God, on the third day, God raised him from the dead in victory. Victory over sin and victory over death. And the promise is that if we would trust in Jesus believing in who he is and what he did on the cross, believing that God raised him from the dead and trusting that it was done on our behalf, then we can have life. That our sins are taken and placed on the cross of Christ and his wrath poured out on our sins. But then Jesus' righteousness taken and placed on us so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see a sinner deserving of his wrath. He sees a son and a daughter. He sees the righteousness of of Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus are given life. They're given life in abundance. They're given God's Spirit placed within their hearts. God comes and dwells within them, and the Holy Spirit comes and he, he starts chipping away at that heart of stone. He starts molding and shaping the heart to look more like his heart. And what we believe in Philippians 1.6 is that he who began a good work in them will be faithful to bring that work to completion. That there will be a day when the follower of Jesus will stand in eternity fully glorified, fully made to look like his son in the presence of God forever. The follower, follower of Jesus is saved from certain condemnation and judgment that they deserve And they're saved into perfect relationship with God and eternity in his presence. See, the greatest gift of salvation, it runs far deeper than just being rescued from condemnation. The greatest gift of salvation is that we are saved from condemnation into right relationship with God to be in his presence for all eternity. One of my coworkers, Mr. Jerry, he, he said it so well one day. He said, I'd even settle to be a blade of grass or a rock in heaven just to be in the presence of God. That's the gift of salvation. We were destined for judgment. We were without hope. We were dead in our sins. But God, so rich in love and mercy, sent his son Jesus to redeem us and to restore us. And that is the message of the gospel. But it doesn't end there for the follower of Jesus. See, the follower of Jesus has been commissioned, has been sent out. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, he sends out his disciples. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. He commands his followers to go and make more followers of him to go and make more disciples. He appoints his followers, he appoints us as followers of Jesus, as Christians, to be watchmen, to sound the alarm, to have the role that Ezekiel had, to to proclaim the message that he gave us. And what is the message? That judgment is coming, that we must repent and turn from our sins, that we must turn to Jesus and we will be saved. The message is that you are dead in your sins, but in Jesus, you can have life. See, it's not that God needs us to advance his gospel. He's God. He can advance his gospel and advance his kingdom in any way he so chooses. It's that he chooses us, that we as Christians have the honor and privilege to be a part of the advancement of his kingdom, the movement of his kingdom. That is a gift that we get to be a part of seeing God taking dead people and making them alive, what greater mission is there that we could be a part of than this mission? But as Christians, so many of us, we pretend that this command doesn't exist. We pretend that Jesus never commanded us and we neglect this commission that he's commissioned us to do. We, we stand on the wall at our post and we look out and we see the judgment that's coming and we then look and see people and stare them in the eyes, people who are destined for this judgment, yet we say nothing. We fail to alert the people and sound the alarm. An analogy that was helpful for me, uh, just kind of putting this into to perspective for us, is, is imagine that you're on this massive boat. And on this boat, there's a ton of people on it, and you're off at sea, and you get news that the boat's going down, that it's it's beginning to sink. And you know that because of the type of waters you're in, how far away you are, that when that thing goes down, if anyone who hits that water, they're not going to make it. They're going to die. But as you get this news, you, you find out that there's a lifeboat, that there's a safety boat on the ship. And you find out that it's, it's large enough to hold anyone who gets to it. And you find out where it is, and so you start moving in that direction with with great intent, moving towards the safety of that lifeboat. But as you go, you see all these people who are just kind of doing their own thing. Some have no clue that anything's wrong. Others think there's something wrong, but they're moving in the wrong direction. You're bumping past people, moving towards this safety boat, and you keep passing by person after person after person who's heading in the complete wrong direction. You, you look and you see your coworkers, you see your classmates, you see friends, you see family members, and you know they're heading in the wrong direction. If they don't get to that safety boat, they're not gonna make it, yet you say nothing and you keep going along your way. That's the picture of the follower of Jesus who fails to proclaim the gospel message to the lost world. We've been given a message. So, so why don't we share this gospel? Why don't we? And it, and I'm going to be honest with you and just speak very personally here. This is something that I struggle with. This isn't me standing up here saying, hey, you need to share the gospel. This is something that, that I know I struggle with personally. And I think that many of us do. So, so why do we? And I think there's many different reasons. Maybe it's just the awkwardness of having that conversation. It, it can be weird or awkward for the moment. Maybe we just don't feel equipped to do so. And so we think, oh, maybe it's, it's someone else's responsibility. It's the, the pastors, the missionaries, the people who are just good at speaking. That's their role. My role is something else. Maybe it's, it's the fear of losing some relationship, that if we share this, they might reject me, but it might not just be that they reject the message, that they reject me personally. And I lose maybe a co-worker's uh, friendship or maybe even get cast out of my family for it, get ostracized by society. See, honestly, though, the biggest reason that we fail to proclaim the gospel is a lack of love. We've got a love problem, and that's why we don't. Because what we see in Scripture, what Jesus says, is if we we love him, then we'll obey his commands. Love brings obedience. If we truly love God, then we will obey his commands. And then with that, if we truly love God, we will truly love people. And if we love people, we would go. In our college home teams this semester, we've been working through First Peter. And in First Peter this past week, we talked about how our identity as children of God grows our love for others. And Jesus says that when he boils down the, the greatest command, what it all points and centers around is love of God and love of people. That if we truly loved God, we would love his people. And if we truly loved his people, we would go. We would proclaim this gospel message. Penn Gillette, he's a magician, and he's in the famous magic duo, Penn and Teller. And Penn is an outspoken atheist. Everyone kind of knows he's an atheist. And several years back, he posted this video. And in this video, he talked about how after a show, he was signing autographs in the lobby. And he came up, and there was this this guy who had been in the show the night before, and he had some props that I guess he was going to get him to sign. And he started talking to this guy, and he said, the guy was just really nice. He was really polite, kind. He began to compliment me and and say nice things. He said, you could tell it wasn't fake, it was genuine. He said he was sane, he wasn't weird. And he said he gave me this Bible. He said he had to know that I was an atheist, he knew I didn't believe it, but he gave me this Bible and on the front cover he wrote this message and he wrote some contact information and said, hey, if you wanna talk or have questions, I'd love to talk with you. And he said the man left and it was a really pleasant conversation. And Penn in the video goes on to talk about his view of proselytizing or essentially sharing a message and hope to convert someone or what we would say evangelizing. And this is what he said. And keep in mind, he's an atheist. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? If I believed that beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, if that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's an unbeliever. He's an atheist and he says this. How unloving for us as followers of Jesus to to believe what we say we believe yet not proclaim it to a lost world. In fact, not just how unloving, how hateful is it for us to say we have the message of eternal life yet not proclaim that to those who are dying each day without it. See, greater than any reason we could give for not sharing this gospel, the problem we have is a heart problem. We don't love God enough to trust his command, and we don't love him enough to love his people. If we loved God, we would love people, and if we loved people, we would go. And, and those of us who, who, as we love God and have experienced him and experienced the life with which we have in him, the natural response is to go and share the gospel, Jesus, throughout his ministry, when he would encounter people and perform all these different miracles for them, early on in his ministry, oftentimes we find Jesus saying, hey, don't tell anyone about this. He knew that if his popularity grew, it wasn't his time yet to go to the cross, but if it grew, he'd go earlier. And so he's saying, hey, don't let anyone know this. Don't tell anyone. But what we find is in these situations, oftentimes the Bible tells us that the people go and tell anyways, that they can't help but share this message, uh, this encounter with the Christ. Christian, when you have been saved from from death to life, the natural response is to go and tell people we are propelled to go forward. See, when we put things in their proper perspective and we see the eternal stakes that are at hand, then these excuses we make, they fall to the wayside. We will go with intention. We will proclaim the message. We will sound the alarms. Just this past week, um, I heard my wife, Sarah, screaming from the uh, porch, Maggie, 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 Maggie. That's our dog. I was like, oh no, what happened? And before I could even get up, she comes indoors and says, snake, snake, snake. So I go outside and sure enough, there was a four foot copperhead sitting in our yard that our dog thought was her new best friend. And so when Sarah saw this, she didn't say, well, you know, Maggie's old enough to make her own decisions at this point. She can just play with it if she wants. She didn't say, ah, Maggie's kind of stubborn. She doesn't listen that well. She probably won't listen to me anyways. I'm just, whatever. Or it's going to be inconvenient to yell. I don't want to wake the neighbors. Like, Ryan's sitting on the couch, so I don't want to alarm him. Just let her go. No, the stakes were too high. She screamed, she did whatever she could. I guarantee she would have gone and pulled the dog off the snake if she could have. Thankfully, Maggie listened. She's all good now. But... The stakes were too high. She had to sound the alarm. When we put eternity into perspective and we see the judgment that's coming, but we see the hope that we have in Christ, the the stakes are too high not to proclaim that message. And then with that, when we put it in proper perspective, our excuses fall by the wayside. We, we, We might say, oh, well, it's awkward. Well, it's awkward for a moment. Look at the scope of eternity. That is just a brief moment that's gone. That shouldn't keep us from sharing. When might say, oh, I don't feel equipped. I, I don't really speak that well. That's the excuse that Moses gave, remember? Moses said when God was trying to send him to Egypt, he's like, ah, I don't really speak well. And God goes, yeah, I know. I made you. <laughs> I made you. And guess what? I'm going to be with you. So if you say, oh, I don't feel equipped. I can't do it. Good. God is in the business of equipping the unequipped. And when you go and you share the gospel and you fumble all over yourselves and someone comes from death to life from that gospel proclamation, then God's going to get the glory for it. So praise God for it. You might say, oh, well, what if we lose the relationship? This is eternity that's at stake. You're here in relationship with them, and yes, it's beautiful for a moment, but this life will come to an end. And wouldn't you prefer to have them worshiping alongside you for all eternity? well, what if they don't listen? What if they... Don't? Jesus says that the, the path is narrow to life and so many won't listen. But by the grace of God, just maybe some will hear your message of proclamation of the gospel and they will give their hearts to Jesus. And what a beautiful picture it will be with you worshiping in full glory in all eternity in perfect love and perfect peace and perfect joy standing alongside someone who God used you to call from death to life. What a beautiful picture that would be. We must go. We must be driven by this love and this compassion for others, driven by our love for God. We, we, we don't have to have some well-formulated argument and have all these things. We just have to share the simplicity of the gospel, that we are dead apart from him, that we've rebelled against him, but in Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, if we trust in him, we can have life. That's the simplicity of the gospel that we must share. Here's the beauty of it all. It doesn't depend upon us. It doesn't depend upon us. It's, we have no power or authority to change the hearts of mankind. We are just called to be the obedient vessels carrying the message. And then we get to step back and watch God do the work. Watch him call someone from death to life. Jesus, in his ministry, in Matthew 9, verses 36 through 38, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When Jesus looked on the people, and he saw these lost and broken people, his heart was filled with compassion. And he looked to his disciples and he said, the harvest is plentiful. What that means is there are many here who are just waiting to hear that gospel message, many who are waiting to respond and give their life to me. He said, but the laborers are few, that we don't have that many messengers. And so he tells his disciples, pray earnestly for God to raise up laborers to go into the harvest. Christian, how often do you find yourself praying earnestly for the lost? How often do you find yourself just in fervent prayer, praying for those who don't know Jesus around you? Praying that God would soften their hearts and that they would be ripe for the harvest. Praying that they would hear the gospel message and give their lives to him. Praying that God would raise up laborers to go out and to share and proclaim this gospel. How often do you find yourself given over to prayer for the lost? In the very next passage, Jesus, immediately following this, he, he gathers together his disciples, he equips them, and then he sends them out as laborers into the harvest. He sends them out. And I, I had a professor share a quote that said this. He said, he told them to pray for laborers, and then he made them the answer to their prayers. Christians, pray for laborers, and then go and be a part of answering your own prayers. I just want to close with this. If you are not a follower of Jesus, the trumpet has been sounded. You are dead in your sins. You have rebelled against the Holy God, and judgment is coming for that sin. But if you would, in humility, turn from your sins and trust Jesus, believing in who he is and what he did on the cross, believing that it was done for you, then you can have salvation. You can have life. And I hope and I pray that you would do that follower of Jesus. You might feel convicted saying, I haven't been sharing this gospel. It's okay. We have a a faith of grace. And so repent. Ask God for forgiveness for the failure to proclaim this message. Pray and ask God to grow your love for him so that you will continue to share. Pray and ask God to grow your love for others so that you will be sent forth from that love. And then... Know that the harvest is plentiful. Pray earnestly for God to raise up laborers and then go and be the answer to your prayers.